using artificial intelligence and machine learning in a product or a database is traditionally difficult because it involves a lot of manual setup, specialized training, and a clear understanding of the various ML models and algorithms. You need to develop the right ML model for your data, train the model, evaluate it, optimize it, analyze it for outliers and anomalies, assemble confidence ranges for the predictions and feature importance, and eventually deploy it to make predictions. An emerging field in AI called automated machine learning, or AutoML, lowers these barriers to entry by using AI to automate much of this process. One of the market leaders in AutoML is MindsDB. Their service lets business users and developers make predictions on top of the data at its source. Rather than make expensive copies of databases, MindsDB trains and deploys models right inside the database. The results of their ML models can be queried with standard SQL statements and integrated into other applications as easily as querying any other database. In this episode, we learn about the progress been made in AutoML to simplify incorporating machine learning throughout the organization. Jorge, welcome to the show. Hi, Jeffrey. Thank you for having me. You work on MindsDB. What problem is MindsDB trying to solve? We're trying to solve the problem of making it very easy for you to apply machine learning if your data is in a database. Give me a little bit more context. Why is that a problem that is worth solving? Yeah, the problem that we see that people have when they have a prediction that they want to make is that they tend to reinvent the wheel over and over. And maybe the best way to cover this is an example. Imagine that you have a database with inventory information and you want to forecast how your inventory looks in the next week or in the next day, next month. And traditionally how you go about this problem is that you have a data scientist or a machine learning engineer that goes into your database, extracts say inventory for your iPhone inventory and then loads this into a data frame, a pandas data frame, they usually work on Python notebook, and they go and build a model, spend some time, weeks, maybe days, if they're, they're really good, build a model. And then once they have this model, they even if the model is pretty good, they kind of run into a wall when they want to move this model into production. What I mean by this is usually in that same database, you not just have an iPhone. For many of the stores, you may have thousands of products, tens of thousands of products, or even you may have tens of thousands of products, as well as many stores that you may have. And what that means is that you're going to have to train tens of thousands of models for solving that particular problem of predicting inventory, which is unviable. Like there's no way that you're going to train a model for each of the products that you have and each of the stores that you have. So given that your data is already in the database, the workflow that might be enables for people is to say, well, actually, I want to predict this column from this table or from this query, and figure out the rest. And what MyZB does is that it allows you to do two things. Tell the database itself with a simple command, like, I want to make this prediction. You usually do this with an insert statement in the MyZB world, and you do it straight in the database. And then what MyZB does behind the scenes is that it figures out what's the best way to train a model that is a time series model for this particular task. And then it will publish this model as a table that also lives in the database. And then you can query this predictor the same way that you query a table. So you can do, okay, now from my select from my predictive model where the product is MacBook, 
and the date is tomorrow. And it will tell you the inventory value from this. So making this abstraction allows users to see machine learning models, not just as tables, but also to not have to deal with like all of the complexities that usually, even if you have a machine learning engineer, they have to go to build a sophisticated model for making this type of inferences. Tell me about some of the biggest time constraints that a developer deals with in traditionally constructing a machine learning model, things that they might encounter if they are not using a machine learning database. So the first thing that they encounter is a whole bunch of ETLing or you know, data extraction and transformation. So they have to go into the database, pull this data, and then massage this data so it kind of fits whatever the idea or ideal input is for the model that they have in mind. And again, this, this ETLing, usually when they do it in the Python world, is, is at some time is reinventing a lot of the data transformations that are available to you at the database layer. And at some point later down the road, you will have made so many transformations that even though you're not thinking at the time of building the model, later you're going to have to now translate all of those transformations into something that you can scale when you want to move into production. The second part is, okay, the model training, which again, that's what they're experts at, and clearly they will end up developing a model that may be a really good model. Then you will have to build a whole bunch of infrastructure to consume this model in a production setting. And usually what people end up doing is that they end up building a web service that then can you know, expose this model that you can then go into some RESTful API to, to go and get predictions from. And this involves that you're going to now invent a whole bunch of ETLing to make consumptions into the model and to bring those predictions to where you need them. Say, for instance, you want to use this in a BI tool, like you want to visualize this in Tableau or whatever. Now you're going to have to go make extractions from the database, run this into the model, and then get the predictions, feed them back into like some tables, and then you can actually use them in Tableau. And that is kind of like the set of wheel reinvention that we enable avoiding people or enable people to avoid. Give me a sense of the onboarding of MindsDB. What does a developer do on day one? Yeah, so it's very simple. You just have to install MindsDB server. We offer MindsDB for most operating systems out there, as well as most container infrastructures like Docker. And once you install a MindsDB server, the next thing that you have to do is plug it into your database. And the databases that we support are MySQL, MariaDB, Postgres, ClickHouse, Microsoft SQL Server. We're now uh, working on integrations for Redis as well as MongoDB. And it's just as simple as just telling what the database is and the credentials. Once you have that, then you can either train models directly from the database or through a graphical interface that we provide for you. So to summarize, it is just a, a three-step process, install, connect, and then you, know, you can do the training and prediction straight from your database. And how does MindsDB know how to query and make predictions to each of these databases? Yeah, that's uh, the essence that we've understood recently and is that really the experts for any type of predictive problem are the people that know the data. So again, we developed this with the people that know how to query uh, a database in mind. And ideally what you have to know is from what query you would like to learn uh, what to predict. 
And you just have to tell my ZB this in a, in a single statement. So you're telling it, okay, insert into predictors, predict this column from this actual select statement. And, and that's what it is. So we delegate the... Right. Yeah, so essentially you have the ability to tell my ZB from what query you want to learn and then therefore you're delegating this to the user. You're delegating the responsibility to the user to understand from what transformation in your database you want to learn. It's not that MyZB will figure out what predictions to get. You have to tell it what you want to predict and from what query you would like to learn. Can you give a typical use case for MindsDB? What is a typical application that a user would want to build? Yeah, predicting inventory, anomaly detection on streams of data, predicting it, pricing, clustering of information based on like some rows that you may have in your in your database, predicting sentiment based on documents on Mongo. So those are the some of the use cases. MyZB is an open source project, and therefore we don't have full visibility of. Uh, all the things that people do with MyCV, but we're certainly a, a big open source community. So if you give that example of inventory prediction, can you just walk through step-by-step step how MindsDB would help with inventory prediction? Sure. So imagine you have a table that has your inventory in, say, MySQL. And in this table, you have a column that has the inventory at a given time. And each row is an update to inventory. So essentially, let's say that you have iPhones, you have MacBooks, you have roller skates, you have a whole bunch of products. And as your inventory gets updated, you have a new row that says, okay, I'm updating the inventory on iPhones. I added 10 and my current inventory now is 20. So that in itself is uh, kind of like a common kind of architecture for, a, for how a inventory store will look like. Again, this information may be in different tables, but at the end you can join these tables to kind of like make it look like this. So assuming that the column that you want to predict is inventory, what you do is you tell mine to be, okay, from this query, select from the table inventory, I want to predict the column inventory count. And then mine to be goes and figures out, well, actually this is a problem that has a group by, which is by grouping by product ID and say store ID and has some time element to this because you may have a column for time and it understands that it's a time series problem. What MyZB also does behind the scenes is it understands that uh, you know you may want to take into consideration the different columns that you have in this database, in this specific table, and it builds a way to generate embeddings from each of those columns. Say for instance, you may have a description of the product so it realizes that you're going to have to use some way to get an embedding from the text in that column. For the time series one, it may use an RNN to get the latest state of the RNN as the, as the embedding for the actual historical information of the inventory. And like that, it does it for all the columns. And once it has a way to generate embeddings from each of the columns, it finds a way to mix all of this information for the targets. So that's what is known as machine learning mixers. And then it compounds all of that into what is called a MindsDB model. Now, this model then gets published to the database as an abstraction of a table. 
So what that means is that the table really doesn't exist anywhere but just being a, an external table to the database. Again, it leverages on the capacity of some of these databases to have external tables. What I mean by this is MySQL, Postgres, all of those have a concept of bringing tables that don't exist in the database and querying them. And then when you query, essentially what the engine does is that it forwards the query to the external database engine. So MySQL behaves like a database server. So when it publishes the model, it's just telling, okay, you know, MySQL server, I'm going to have a table called inventory prediction. And whenever you get queries to that, just give me that those queries. And essentially what you're going to have is that when those queries come in, MySQL knows that whatever is on the where statement is what inputs to the model. Whatever output you get formats as a table and then returns that information. Now for the client though, even though this is what happens behind the scenes, really what they see is a way to create a model by a simple statement. So, okay, I want to predict, learn how to predict from this column, from this select statement. Uh, and they do that by inserting into a table called predictors. And then the other thing that they see now is another table that appears on their database called inventory prediction. And then they can query this table. So select from my inventory prediction table where product is iPhone and the date equals tomorrow. And then MyZB does those mechanics that I described to get the prediction, returns the prediction to you, and you're ready to consume that prediction that way. So even though behind the scenes, MyZB does some complicated stuff, for the user, they are just either inserting into a table to generate models or querying that kind of like machine learning model as a table to get predictions. And you can do crazy things like, okay, let's say you want to predict for all your inventory tomorrow, then you can join your table of inventory with the model, and then MyZB will just take each one of those, uh, you know, as a individual prediction, return that as a table, and then you just get, you know, the predictions for all your inventory items for the date tomorrow. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, is this saving? This is typically saving time for an engineer who would typically be building this solution outside of the database layer, or is it just providing a additive functionality that they simply wouldn't have otherwise? Yeah, so on the one hand, it saves a hell of a lot of time for someone that will have to do this manually. But on the other hand, even if you know how to do machine learning models, say for the case of inventory, uh, that example, it is a complicated thing to do machinery models when you have high cardinality problems and especially time series ones. And I mean, high cardinality is, again, in the case of inventory, you can see the information contained in that inventory table as many, many time series problems. Again, as many time series as products, stores, pairs you have. So usually for a machine learning engineer, they will be thinking this of as a single time series problem, but they, when they want to move this into production, really what they realize is that they have to train tens of thousands of models, and that is unviable, and many of those projects die there. So even though there is an, an abstraction that makes it easy for them to, to get started, it is also solving problems that are complex even for very experienced machine engineers. So that, that is essentially the value that we provide. We provide it, uh, a way for them to do it in a very fast way, even if they want to have it as a baseline for benchmarking if they are experienced in machine learning, but also to solve problems that are, are hard. Again, time series is one of them, but you can think of, imagine that you also want to do this for a stream of data. Let's imagine that you have a stream of inventory and you want to get anomalies 
uh, being flagged. Now, doing machine learning on, on streams of data involves that you're not only very good at doing machine learning, but now that you have to be really good at doing machine learning on time series data, but also on time series data with high degrees of cardinality, as well as low latency predictions. And then that you have to plug this into, uh, you know, like some streaming architecture. So MindDB abstracts that part as well, but by, you know, plugging into uh, some of those streaming databases, such as Redis, and we're doing also for Kafka. So essentially, as a user, you continue to work with the database that, that your company uses. It's just that now you have some extra superpowers, which are machine learning at the data layer. Let's get into the architecture of MindsDB. So can you just tell me a little bit about how it fits together and programming language choices and just the overall architecture? Yeah. So MindsDB at the core uses PyTorch for its computational graph. And, and that's kind of like the, the main architectural choice that we made. We picked PyTorch because of you know its dynamic graph uh, capabilities. And then on top of that, we build pretty much everything ourselves. So even though the, the computing graph is, is PyTorch, on top of this, we had to develop a way to do the automail capabilities on top of PyTorch. We have that as a separate project called Lightwood and that anyone can use if they are just into building automail models on top of PyTorch. Then we wrapped that capability of doing automail on a framework called MyZB. And MyZB is a server that essentially behaves like a MySQL server. So you can connect to MySQL like you connect to any other MySQL server using the MySQL uh, TCP IP uh, wire protocol. And what this does is that you can, from any client, say either a BI tool or any kind of like client for MySQL, you can just connect to MySQL. And the difference from a database is that instead of seeing tables, you actually see models. And when you query these models, you would get the same behavior that you would get when you would query a table. And what this does is that enables you to then plug MySDB into databases that support federated storage or external tables. And, and that's essentially kind of like the main building blocks. To summarize it, we have an AutoML library that depends on PyTorch. On top of that AutoML library, we have server infrastructure that is essentially providing the MySQL wire protocol capabilities to for you to expose machine learning models as tables. And then from there, everything is done by your database uh, because then you, we plug MySQL by means of external table capabilities, and then you can do this straight from the database. We do have a graphical interface that ships in with the server, but essentially this graphical interface allows you to do the same thing that you will do from the database, but kind of like in a drag and drop interface. What have been the hardest engineering problems you've had to solve in building MindsDB? Yeah, I think that that question changes every few months. I think that problems that seem very difficult at one point now we see as trivial, even though they may be still difficult problems. So the very first one that we had to solve was the AutoML part. And AutoML can get very complicated if you don't define your constraints very well. The cool thing about doing it at a database is that the constraints tend to be better defined. For many databases, you know, most AutoML problems, they kind of like at the end get translated into, okay, let me understand what table you have, what different column data types you have. 
And the cool thing about the way that machine learning is developed in the world is that it's more data type driven than problem driven. So most people are doing uh, research on text and you know different tasks within text, regardless of the industry that that text may contain. And then the same thing for dealing with numerical virals or time series information. So we can leverage on that by just bringing the latest of understanding of dealing with different data types. And what we really want to get there is an embedding. And then the way that you mix this can also be a science in itself. But at the end, we realize that there are simple mechanics that you can kind of assemble like Lego blocks. So we end up broken, breaking that problem into like different units of, of work that we can then assemble uh, into like a bigger model. So that was the, the first challenge that we have to solve. And that's actually what kicked off as our open source project that got a lot of attention and, and made, made us understand the se second part of problems, which is, okay, once you have a model, AutoML or not, how do you move this into production in a seamless way? And to understand that for many people, the, the data that they were training these models from came from databases. So how do we expose this to databases became the second challenge. Luckily, we had as our investors, the, guy from, the guys from MySQL, MariaDB. Uh, they have a fund called OpenOcean. And we started to see the synergies between databases and, and machine learning. And, and essentially, now we understand how to solve this at scale. It was a challenge at the time, but now it, we, we know what the solution is. And I think that once we started doing this, we started to realize that there are problems that people have uh, that are very common on their databases that can become very tricky, even if you know what you're doing in terms of machine learning. This that, that I'm describing to you before of time series problems with you know, high cardinality. Their problems are very difficult to solve and that you cannot solve with off-the-shelf libraries, like say, for instance, Profit, which is very good if you're only dealing with one single time series problem with you know, only one single variable that you want to predict and one input. But that's not the case for many of these problems inside a database. And solving those did require quite a decent amount of engineering, but now we solved it. And, and that is something that any of the users of MyZB can leverage upon. NLP problems at scale in databases is another challenge that we're currently working on. Being able to do predictions with very low latency is another one. One thing is to train a model that can make a prediction that is accurate. The other one is to bring those very accurate models so that they can kind of like give you predictions in the hundreds of milliseconds or tens of milliseconds. And a lot of this work was was done when you were at Berkeley, right? The AutoML part, yes. That's when we started understanding that AutoML was going to be a problem that people could solve, and, and we actually did. And actually, one of the interesting things that we also understood there is that being able to to produce models automatically also had to go hand in hand with being able to provide tools for the user so that they can develop trust on the model. Like most people are not aware of explainability being an issue until they have the model. That is essentially a byproduct of you having a successful AutoML or successful machine learning engineer producing a model. And, and then you realize that you need to understand how to trust this model. That is a problem that we're still cracking, but we understand that trust can be developed over time if you can, in the different stages of the model, be very transparent as to what is going on. So the approach that we took to explainability is more about quality over the different stages. 
So you have the data quality, you want to inform the user about any potential quality issues that you see on the data, such as potential outliers, or even more importantly, are there biases on your data? Uh, so we do that for the user. The second part is when you have a model, you want to understand not only what makes this model tick, you know, like what are the things that are taken into account to make the predictions, but also when can you trust a model and when you, sh you shouldn't trust a model and be very transparent about this. And lastly, one of the things that we start to realize is that when people use a model, say for instance, when you're actually now making a prediction, say the going back to the inventory, you want to predict what the inventory is going to be tomorrow, conveying to users that this models, they are going to give you just an estimate of what that can be. You know, you cannot take that answer to be deterministic. Then being able to portray the re results that you get into a model and to like, hey, look, what you're getting is a, a kind of like a range of values and the probability of your answering landing there. So being able to communicate this in a very simple way, it's, it's what we've done. And also to, to you know, understand and make users understand that it's not a single value what, what you get, but you get kind of like that your value may fall within a certain range and there's a probability of it landing there. So you mentioned this issue of needing to know whether you can trust a model or not. Can you dive deeper into that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that there are mission critical problems and that's up to the domain expertise that you have. And it is not necessarily that someone is going to die or not uh, because of a prediction. It may be that you may be losing money for because of a, a prediction. And at the end, you you it's not that you're getting predictions out of the whim of wanting them. You are getting predictions because you're going to decide something based on that prediction. In the case of inventory, you're going to probably decide if you're going to buy more or less and making sure that Let's say, for instance, if you're doing anomaly again on inventory, is so that you can act uh, ahead of time, so that you, you don't get caught unprepared. But all of these predictions lead to some action, and the last thing that you want to do is to act upon something that you don't trust. If you have a system that is breaking inventory and it's telling you that your inventory is going to drop, if you don't trust this, then you're never going to use these predictions actually. And you're going to go for a less reliable system, perhaps, which is your intuitions. You'd be like, oh, I actually think it's going to go up. I actually think it's going to go down. And the reason why you may prefer that is because you may have someone that is accountable for that decision. So what we want to do is, rather than replacing the prediction, is augment the capability of that prediction so that the decision maker continues to be the decision maker, but has some tools to understand whether to trust or not trust that prediction. And in our opinion, they boil down to being able to communicate very clearly the quality of the different stages of machine learning, even if they're not machine learning engineers. So do you have a selection of pre-trained models that you apply the data to? So we do transfer learning for some of the problems where we understand that there is significant gain in time for the model training. The cool thing, though, is since we break the problem into smaller problems, then you can leverage on transfer learning for some cases. Say, for instance, you have, let's go back to the inventory problem. So we keep it within that scope. You may have a column that has the description of the product. Now, that column may give you or not some information about uh, the inventory. So what you want to do is you 
of course want to extract some meaningful information to get to make this prediction and you can go two ways about this you know like the building block for us is to get an embedding from text in this case for that description column you can transfer learn from models that have been really good at giving you an embedding from sentences and that's what we do now we do this for most columns some of those columns you can do transfer learning some of those you can't but at the end what you get is you know various different different building blocks for each of the of the columns that you have in your problem and then from there on each model is very different because you know unless you're you have two tables that are identical mycb will come up with a different way to mix this different embeddings to get to your predicted variable now the mechanics for this now we we understand better how to do this, but initially what might be was to just, just bring Wacamole at it. It was trying very different models that will at the end benchmark and will give you the best one. Now it has very heuristic as to okay for this statistical information that I have from my input data, the best candidate models uh, to mix the embeddings to get to the target might be this one, and then it again tries them all and gives you the best one. And are you tuning hyperparameters, like the number of layers and the layer sizes, et cetera? Like, are you trying a variety of different models to, to present to the user? Yeah, that's a great question. So initially, we were on the fly. But then we realized that the time to walk through all of those hyperparameters was something that many users didn't have the patience for or the computational resources. And now we understand that also there are places where hypertuning will give you a significant increase in accuracy, like, you know, like one order of magnitude difference in, in accuracy. But there are some other hyperparameters where you're talking about like your model, be, model being 98% accurate versus 98.5 accurate. And that difference is not as substantial to uh, to the user so that they can kind of now wait an extra five hours to go and, you know, fine tune those hyperparameters automatically. So we do fine tuning for those elements that we understand have a significant output in terms of gains in accuracy. And then for the other ones, we have a set of rules that we understand will give you the optimal uh, number may not necessarily be the absolute best, but it close to the best. What do you do when the user tries to apply MindsDB to a use case that doesn't end up being a good fit? Is the is the database able to flag to the user that this data doesn't just can't really be uh, trained around? Yeah, so that that's a cool thing about the trust uh, dimensions that I was describing to you. You can train a model with MindsDB, and then at the end, if your data is not enough, you're just going to get poor quality dimension uh, that will be explained to you. And then you can decide if that's better than random guessing or not, or than, than your informed guess can be or not. But we don't constrain users by not training the model. All we do is we train it, we try, and then we give you some metrics around the quality of the model in itself that will make you decide whether to use it or not. Who is the user of MindsDB? Is it like a data analyst? Data analysts for sure uh, account for them. Now we're making integrations to BI tools 
again, because since MySDB behaves like a like a SQL my SQL database, and you can plug it to most BA tools out there. So it's not necessarily that we're making development for those integrations, but we're building partnerships with uh, database makers, uh, with uh, BA tool makers. We have one with Looker right now and developing one with Domo and, and various ones. But that's because we understand that, of course, uh, the data analysis part, uh, many of those already understand and, and how, to, how to do SQL. And many of their BA tools are SQL driven, so it works for them. But it's also developers that touch a database and they need to implement a feature that has predicted capabilities. So developer in general accounts for, for a good number of the users as well. So not just data analysts. So the, the actual machine learning that's taking place in MindsDB, what machine learning framework are you using? Yeah, so MindsDB has its automated framework called Lightwood. And then under the hood, Lightwood uses PyTorch. Any color on PyTorch versus TensorFlow? Yeah, I think that it's definitely as colors, you know, it's, it's a preference. We picked PyTorch because they were pioneers on the dynamic graph and it just lent itself for uh, the way that we were building AutoML. I think that now TensorFlow has evolved in that direction as well. So everything that we do in PyTorch, we could do in TensorFlow, but we're, we're certainly happy with uh, the direction that we took at that time. But we understand that there are things that one does better than the other. I think that for the implementation that we had, PyTorch was was a good solution at the time and continues to be. TensorFlow now is also a very good one, especially now with the abstractions that they made so that people can also do them as if they were doing Keras. That will certainly would have made it easier for us at the time. So yeah, we, we like them both, but we picked PyTorch at that time because it, it was the right solution for us. And, I, and we think that both of them are, are solid, solid frameworks. We do, however, on top of our AutoML library, we have the MyZB server, which is agnostic of what you use behind the scenes. So you can bring your own models if you have installed the libraries that you want to use in the server. And therefore, if your, your models are being developed on, on TensorFlow, then you may not have the AutoML capabilities, but then you have the ability to publish these models to databases and retrain them from the database and consume data from the database as well. What are the biggest areas of improvement you'd like to add to MindsDB? That's a million dollar question. Everyone in MindsDB is obsessed with improving a given dimension of MindsDB. So we we certainly uh, have various teams working on different elements and that target is always moving. Currently, I think that big efforts that we're doing are around NLP, right now MyZB is good at it, but it can be stellar at NLP. And that's one of the, the objectives that we have in the immediate term. Just as like a few months ago, our objective was to really hone down the very difficult time series problems, which we, we did. Work on streaming data uh, is certainly something that we're doing now. We understand that a lot of people have uh, the need to get predictions from streaming data. It's just that it's very difficult. Like in many cases, it's just theoretical uh, what people have on doing machine learning on streams of data. And then providing those abstractions as we do it for, for other problems is that what we want to do. 
And essentially, with those two, likely the path is as soon as we get really good at NLP as well as really good at streaming uh, data, then we're going to see other gaps that may be even more challenging problems. But as of now, those are the two main areas of improvement. Do you have any other ideas about how machine learning can be pushed into other areas of software development or company building uh, such that the actual hard-to-implement parts of uh, of machine learning are, are abstracted away from the user? Yeah, so I think that eventually the work that we are doing will be more natural even at the database layer itself. We ourselves are working directly with um, some of the, the people that have been instrumental in the development of various database languages. So making some of this capabilities even more natural at the SQL state is something that we're doing right now. Similarly, uh, we want to do it for non-SQL databases. But it all boils down into a pattern that we, we've seen before. And it's like, say, for instance, big data. A few years ago, you had to be a very skilled big data engineer because you had to learn how to do parallel computing and a whole bunch of techniques to really do uh, big data. And they got abstracted and continue to be abstracted by uh, solutions like Snowflake, now distributed data frames and, and alike, that you don't have to know any of that and you can still do big data uh, if you just know how to develop. Now, similarly, we, we think that this is going to happen in, and it's happening in machine learning. Whether we understand exactly what those can be, it's, it's up to... It's up to the direction that users take implementation like MindsDB. What I'm trying to say here is MindsDB is already providing a, a great amount of abstraction. How these abstractions will evolve will really depend on how these users start applying those abstractions and what they start requesting from companies like MindsDB. So we are essentially trying to ensure that our development is driven by feedback from our community. And that's probably the main reason why we went open source. And by definition, I wouldn't be able to tell you what those abstractions would look like, but more into surely users will have a lot of ideas on what they would like to do. And then our task is to ensure that we can provide those abstractions for them. If you were not building MindsDB today, what would you be working on? That is a great question. I spent so much time thinking of MindsDB that right now my, my obsession is really to make sure that MyCB provides as much value as possible to, to its users. But before MyCB really took off as it's taking off right now, I felt that there were other important problems to solve, not necessarily on the yeah, horizontal approach that we've taken, but more in some domains. I think that for instance, whole genome sequencing data, the cost of it is dropping so much every year that there's going to be large amounts of whole genome sequencing data available to people. And there are very little solutions that can deal with that size 
of data sets, like a whole genome sequence can be a few terabytes of data. And therefore it's, it's, a, it's a challenging task to do machine learning on that, that in itself. However, the applications are, you know, as far as your imagination can go, you can predict mental illnesses, you can predict a whole bunch of elements within your DNA that can lead you for better treatments. So again, that area is an open field right now, but the cost or what, what used to be the barrier of entry is dropping so much so that the amount of data versus the capabilities to do machine learning on those continue to be a significant gap. Just to give you more into it, like a few years ago, it was on the millions of dollars for you to get a whole genome sequence. And now it's in the hundreds or less than a hundred for the general consumer. It's, it's an incredible price drop and therefore it is bewildering to me that there are not like many solutions out there for you to do kind of like machine learning at that scale. Do you have any broader predictions about the ecosystem of machine learning and machine learning tools? Yes, absolutely. I think that the approach that we've taken about machine learning at the data layer is going to be uh, a trend and it, it now is starting to catch on. So for instance, Neo4j, they started to realize that this is something that has to go this way. And Neo4j is starting to support also native capabilities on their own at the data layer. So for sure, uh, this is one of the predictions that, that, again, we are fully invested in, but we believe to be, to be true. Then also there will be a time not far enough where quantum computing merges with machine learning even right now, there are very interesting companies like Mantine and whatnot that are doing this machine learning with quantum computing for specific problems that that are really hard to problem to solve otherwise. Now, the amount of qubits that these quantum computers are starting to to be able to handle is growing every year, and now we see even more startups to jump into producing quantum computers. That I, I do think that the merger of the two before was theoretical. But now it will be it will be a reality, and and that you have also people like the guys at IBM producing like high level libraries for you to program quantum computers in a way that you don't have to go and do a PhD in quantum computing to go and do it, which is similar to what was happening before with programming in general. You have to like learn how to do assembly code, and assembly code requires that you really understand how the computer works. So you can kind of like move information around and make these computations in the in the way that that the computer actually does it, and then you have like high level programming languages that abstracted this. And Intel, sorry, IBM is is going down the path of providing this tooling. So surely that is going to be a, a game changing industry as well as not that far from what it was even last year. Like I do, I do think that now it's it's really going to happen very soon. Well, that seems like a good place to close off. Jorge, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you so much, Jeff.